From years of anxiety to warrior and mentor, Bradley Robinson created the Anxiety Project to help you end your anxiety naturally. Let's mold the new you and let's end anxiety together. Welcome back to the Anxiety Project Podcast, episode 242. I am Brad Robinson. Today, I'm really excited to share my conversation with Mark Matusik. This is really great. He is a best-selling author. He's a teacher. He's a speaker. He's written seven books. Much of them are about spiritual growth, growth in general, how to better your life, the lessons he's learned from his journey, not just from going to other countries like India, like Europe, but also interviewing hundreds of different people for Andy Warhol's magazine interview, which is, I think, interesting just in and of itself. You know, Andy Warhol is somebody I look up to, and he he is a very uh, passionate and bold artist, to say the least. But um, I'm excited to pick his brain about that, but also his new book, Lessons from an American Stoic, all about Ralph Waldo Emerson, somebody I'm not too familiar with. So I was excited to speak to Mark about why Ralph Waldo Emerson is somebody worth looking into. What lessons can we learn from this Stoic? And believe me, there are so many eye-opening lessons to learn, and I highly recommend you pick up Mark's book. It's available now. I think it came out yesterday. This, Yeah, yesterday. It's, it's amazing. And so I'm really excited to share my conversation with him. So without a further ado, here is Mark Matusik. Mark Matusik, welcome to the Anxiety Project podcast. I'm really grateful that you decided to meet with me and talk with me today. Um, your book, Lessons from an American Stoic, uh, is really interesting because I am not familiar with Waldo Emerson. And so I guess before we dive into this book and... and Waldo, um, could you just provide, with everybody who doesn't know who you are and is not familiar with your work, how did you wind up being an author and, and how did you stumble upon Walden to, uh, Waldo to, to write his book? Well, I've been writing ever since I was a little kid, very young boy, about seven or eight years old. I first discovered that when I wrote about my experiences, I made more sense to myself. Mm. You know, like a lot of kids, I grew up very confused. I didn't have a lot of guidance around me. There was trauma, violence, and hardship in, in my family. And it turned me inward uh, for the answers to questions that nobody was around to give me. So I discovered that when I put down my, my thoughts, my worries, my fears on paper, uh, that it connected me to my core. And it gave me a sense of not being quite so powerless. So I really started as a writer at that age uh, as a way of finding answers to questions that could help me uh, understand myself and my world and my life. And that gave rise to my career first as a reporter, someone getting stories out of other people, uh, to turning inward as a memoirist, uh, and eventually as a teacher. So there's been a real organic uh, pro progression from my myself as a, a wounded, confused little boy looking for answers, returning to my journal, 
uh, to what I'm doing now, writing about Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was one of the great proponents of keeping a journal and asking ourselves questions uh, as a way of waking up to the possibilities of our lives. And I stumbled upon him myself as, a, as an accident. In my, I was a graduate student. I had heard of Ralph Waldo Emerson, but I hadn't really explored his work. And I just fell into a job as a research assistant for a professor who was writing a book about him, about his major essays. And I spent a year helping her just dig up old references and things. And it really gave me a sense of who this guy was. And it blew my mind. I had just never come across uh, someone with that vision of human potential. Really, he was a human potential writer at his core. That was really his essence. And that spoke to me very, very deeply. It's what I was looking for uh, my whole life. Mm. And you had a very traumatic childhood from, uh, from what I read in, in the book. And um, so journaling helped you manage much of the distress and the chaos happening. And could you be more specific, specific about that? Because um, journaling helped me in so many different ways for me um, face and confront the confusion of my life. But how has it for you more specifically? It's been radical for me. Radical. Uh, realizing that when I put down my thoughts and feelings on paper, it gave me distance from them. They were no longer in charge. Mm. Uh, I could I could evaluate them with some objectivity. Uh, and it, it's in the distance between uh, the page and one's eyes that insight happens. So when you get this stuff out of you, uh, it gives you far more perspective and far more self-awareness. And what I discovered, Brad, was that even when things didn't change externally, as long as I could keep asking questions and examining it, I didn't feel powerless. So I realized that there's a certain power that comes from self-awareness. And that when I could get clear on what, where I was deluded, where I was making up things that weren't true, where I was exaggerating you know, aspects of my experience, that there was less pain, there was less fear, there was less, there was less anxiety. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. shining a light on the things that you don't want to confront like the things lurking in the shadow aspect of the psyche and um yeah that 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 is massive uh, for me i noticed that like you were saying the writing it writing the fears out decreased its power and um i think when they are circling within the mind we create them to be more of what they are. It's like refusing to speak Voldemort's name. You're just actually growing the snake rather than, you know, learning how to not only, not only are you capable of even saying the name or confronting it, but you are capable of planning a strategy to actually get through it. And I think journaling is that process, I think. That's exactly right. It, naming something gives it less power over you. It's a reason in the 12-step programs, you start by saying, I am an alcoholic, I am a drug addict, I am a, a compulsive shopper, whatever it happens to be, when you yeah. give it a name, it doesn't. it's not quite so overwhelming. Yeah. And that's yeah. the thing about fear is it masquerades as truth mm. uh, until you start to question your thoughts about the fear. Uh, and when you get close up to your own fears, as anyone who does meditation knows 
uh, it, they reveal themselves to be masses of contradictions and beliefs and expectations and biases that you're not even aware of, and the fear diminishes. And so that's the beautiful thing about uh, self-inquiry, is that we can actually change the quality of our uh, inner experience by questioning our thoughts. It's like Byron Katie, the great spiritual teacher, says, she says, the mind is like a child. It believes what we tell it until we start to question what we're telling it. Absolutely. And so what writing does is it shows what is your messaging? You know, what are you telling yourself? How are you creating this uh, inner experience uh, that you're suffering with? You know, what is your contribution? So we may not always be able to change what's going on. This is really important. It's not about always shifting conditions. Sometimes things suck. Sometimes you're in a situation that's just awful, but you can always uh, shift your response to it. Uh, the, the, the great author, uh, Viktor Frankl, who wrote a, about the Holocaust, said this is the last of the human freedoms. The last of the human freedoms is our ability to choose our responses to our circumstances. That's where our power lies. How does one choose? I mean, we talked about journaling as a strategy, but um, in your book, Lessons from an American Stoic, you talk about that more, about how we have more power than we think we do over our life circumstances. And what comes to mind right now, Mark, is the victim mentality. How, you know, I see it all the time, even with uh, past friends and relatives, just people who continuously play out the same pattern of thought, behavior, even relationships. Um, and and they, they think that, you know, they're dealt a bad hand. God, they, they're shaking their fist at existence. Um, and I, th I think a great book that really lays that out is um, Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky about like the person who's like just in this state of victim uh, mode and it, he's shaking his fist at existence and like wanting to get revenge and trying to prove his or her intelligence, right? But um, how can we, how can one in that state start, begin to shift that? Well, the first thing to do is to recognize that it's going on. Like we right. were just saying, name yeah. it for what it is. So right. when, you, when it's self-pity, call it self-pity. When it's victimization, call it victimization. Now, it's, this is really important too, because we can be victimized in our lives without becoming victims. You see, there are things that happened to me, for example, when I was a kid, I was victimized in certain kinds of ways. That didn't mean that I was uh, a victim for the rest of my life. It didn't yeah. then have to become my identity. And the problem is that we attach uh, what has happened to us to an identity, an idea about ourselves. So the first thing to do is recognize where you're being a victim, uh, to get over the shame of realizing it, because a lot of people fight that. I get that with students all the time, pushback, when I suggest that they're, they're playing a victim role uh, unnecessarily. A lot of people protect that, because, of course, the, the wounded ego protects its turf. And if it sees itself that way, it's going to do anything it can to fight off evidence to the contrary. So very often students will uh, shoot, want to shoot the messenger when you say, hey, you're playing the victim card. But it's the most disempowering thing that we can do. Uh, the most compassionate thing you can do is tell someone you care about that they're, uh, that they're trapping themselves in a victim role. That's an act of love. That's an act of compassion. Because then once you realize it 
and you get over the resistance to it and the shame over it, then it can start to change. And you can say, yes, this happened to me. I can grieve my losses. I'm not denying any pain, but I'm not going to carry it around with me for the rest of my life as a permanent, uh, as a permanent identity. Right, right. Absolutely. I, I think for me, Mark, when I started to shift my behaviors and then what I was saying, because I noticed that most of what I was saying on a day-to-day basis was making me feel weak, right? It was things that were coming out randomly or unconsciously. And I was like, wow, I have to reorient not only how I speak, but how I act as a person, because I I later then realized that our identity is made up of our beliefs and our values. And it's like what you act out periodically or most is determining internally what you value as a person. So that was huge for me. That's absolutely right. You know, beliefs are what creates story. Beliefs are really another word for story. And stories are made up of how we articulate our beliefs. And that's why putting language to things is so powerful. Because we see, ah, this is what this narrative is actually made of. It's made of that story about my mother and that, or that belief about my, my boss and that belief about myself. And they come together to create a story. Yep. And when you see that, uh, it, it's like getting out of jail. And, and you realize that you're the storyteller, not the story. This is something I say all the time, that when you start to tell the whole truth about your beliefs and your experience, your story changes. And when your story changes, your life is transformed uh, because we are creating our experience through our interpretation, uh, through our, our biases and through our, our feelings all the time. Uh, so to get that, which is really, I think, the, the first big step on any path of self-knowledge, understanding that you're not the, your mind, you're not the, what's going on in your mind, mm-hmm. is a quantum leap in, in self-realization and, and healing. Mm-hmm. I love that. If I were to meet you in a coffee shop or elevator and you were to sell me on Ra- Ralph Waldo Emerson um, in about a, a minute or two minutes, you know, what would you say about him that would convince me, oh, I got to check this stoic out. Like, I, I got to, I want to learn about this guy. Because when I started to dive into your book, I was like, man, so much wisdom here, right? So much wisdom. And I'm sure you felt the same way as soon as you dove into him. But if you can just express to those listening who are not familiar with Ralph Waldo Emerson, just what would you say? Ralph Waldo Emerson was the first Native American philosopher. He was the first self-help author in this country, and he was the father of a spiritual path that he called self-reliance. And the essence of self-reliance is that when we're connected to a power larger than ourselves, we touch into our own genius. And when we touch into our genius, we attain what he called originality. Ralph Waldo Emerson was all about originality, nonconformity, appreciating your contradictions, allowing yourself to be inconsistent, you know, understanding that you are creating your uh, reality at every moment, like we've been saying. That was, of course, the great stoic insight, was that we have power over our negative emotions uh, when we look at how we're framing our experience and that there are exercises that we can do to shift how we see. And that's what Emerson was talking about throughout Uh, his whole career, was that we have all of this potential that we don't recognize. 
So what I would say to anyone uh, listening to this who doesn't know about Emerson is if you want a much bigger sense of who you are and what's possible for you in your life, check this guy out uh, because he was eloquent beyond belief uh, and extraordinarily humble uh, and a beautiful soul. And it really comes through in the work. There's a warmth uh, in the writing that, that touches you even after 200 years uh, this some of this stuff is as alive as ever. So it's like any good poetry, like any good uh, philosophy, Brad, it holds up over time. Uh, and there he said things that you will just simply never forget. You know, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. You know, uh, there's nothing there's nothing so weak as an egotist. You know, it goes on and on and on. And so these things have really guided me in my life. So the reason I wrote the book is after I've been living with this stuff for 40 years and I really wanted to share uh, share some of this wisdom with people who didn't know his work. Yeah, yeah. I wrote so many things down when I was reading your book that really resonated with me. One thing is that Emerson taught that following the crowd is a mistake and he valued separating himself from culture, from the society and, and isolating himself in nature so he valued nature solitude and stepping away from i guess what freud would call the super ego um and so i val you know i discovered this going through my personal journey with anxiety was that so much of my pattern was coming the voices in my head were coming from negative friends advertisements society um and stepping away from this and then having role models like at the time for me, it would be like Wim Hof or um, spiritual people like Russell Brand who went through recovery and wrote these great books that I fell in love with. And um, I noticed that uniqueness does come from the separation. So can you expound more about that separation and, and how, maybe how Emerson even found that for himself. How did he come across that? Sure. Well, Emerson was brought up as a Boston Brahmin, very well, very proper. He was a seventh generation minister. Uh, he could have been a buttoned up kind of conservative guy his entire life. And he went through a spiritual breakdown, really, in his late 20s. And he left the ministry. He realized he didn't believe in a traditional idea of, of Christ. He was thrown he was he was really thrown out of polite society for a while by having the gall to say that god lives within us that nature is is god on earth and that we see ourselves reflected he said all these pagan pantheist things that got him got him thrown and you know thrown out of polite society uh, he was excommunicated from harvard for 30 years for for uh, an address that he gave to these young boys basically saying you're wasting your time in school go out in nature and find god on your own so he discovered the hard way that society is not your friend that at the end of the day the individual is between uh, the individual and herself you know how she lives her life and that the messages that we're given, the reasons that we're, you know, uh, told to mind our P's and Q's and color within the lines are bogus. And that, the, and that it's our responsibility as self-aware, self-reliant people to keep asking questions, to not take the majority's uh, rules, you know, to heart, and to think for ourselves. 
And that's at the heart of all seekers' paths. And until we turn within and ask ourselves what we truly believe and tune into that small, still voice within ourselves, uh, we don't know ourselves. We're not connected to our own guidance. Uh, and so Emerson was all about uh, keep society at a distance, follow your inner guidance, your inner genius, trusting your own goodness. And that's another big piece of this, is he essentially believed in human goodness. He didn't deny the evil that people are capable of. Uh, but like a good Buddhist, he be believed that our basic nature is good and that it, we are trustworthy. And that's something also that put him at odds with the Christian church at the time that was all about original sin and hellfire and brimstone. He was saying, that's all bull. You know, the truth is that we have integrity and natural integrity when we follow uh, what feels, feels right to us when we're in our right mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has nothing to do with, you know, with, with being, a, you know, being a, a good citizen necessarily. He had, he had a lot of contempt for that, actually. You know, being the doing things just to be a good citizen, he thought was very hypocritical. Whoa, that that was that brought something to my mind, Mark, um, because I felt when you were saying that, that when you're the like today, it's so common. The average person is consumed in this unconscious state of 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 mind that that they're unable because they're in society in and they're unconscious, not tapping into their potential, I feel like those shadow aspects of their personality become unintegrated and chaotic and would would uh, pop up randomly and without any proper, I guess, uh, awareness or control. But when you separate yourself from society, it's like you have no other option but to confront those unintegrated parts they come out and then you start to learn how to be aware but also uh let them go and and release them and i think nature like you said in the book will naturally uh like you said you had a fight with an ex-partner in your book and then you were in the redwoods and then like you were angry and then all of a sudden you were like, oh my God, I'm not angry anymore. Like what, what was going on there? Like what did you discover being out in nature? That was an one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Uh, I, I wasn't anticipating it. I didn't plan it. Uh, I had had a huge fight with somebody I was traveling with. I went walking through, as you said, this grove of, of redwoods and I walked for maybe five minutes, and I realized that the rage I'd feeling, been feeling, which had been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks, was gone. Mm -hmm. My mind was calm. My body was relaxed. I, my, the, the anger that in my belly was, was gone. And I realized that I had actually been healed by these trees. I don't know how it happened, mm -hmm. but there was some kind of an exchange of energy that happened. Something shifted in me. Uh, and it was partly getting away from all of the messages out there, the, the noise yeah. that can keep you so turbulent, so anxious. Yeah. For example, Brad, if I had called a friend in that moment and started uh, complaining about what happened, I would have gotten more and more and more angry. So sometimes when you're looking out there for uh, you know, support from people, you get exactly the opposite of what you need. You get, more, you get their anger. 
but by turning to the silence, turning to nature, turning away from uh, culture uh, and the ideas of, of, of what I what I was what I deserved in that moment or what had happened to me, it, it brought a level of tranquility that I could not have could not have have ever really dreamed could just come over me all on its own. Right. And so what Emerson is saying is turn to nature, turn to silence, turn to your own depths, let yourself get quiet, consider your thoughts, notice what's going on. Uh, instead of plugging into the vociferous majority and just becoming part of the mob. So we live so much of our lives, particularly with social media, being part of a mob. We're the mob of the left or the, or the mob of the right. We're just absorbing all of this information all the time, and it's extremely unnerving. And it doesn't bring out your, your best self. Yep. What it does is it turns you into another screamer on one side or another, uh, that connect disconnected from your own interior. Yeah, yeah, I, no, I hundred percent agree. I find it absolutely remarkable that when I am maybe eating without any distractions, or when I'm just sitting with myself, the things that come to my mind, Mark, of like unresolved things, to dos. Um, it's it. I find it so fascinating because I can go to each thought one by one and kind of resolve them, and then until the point where I'm like no other thoughts come, and I'm like kind of sitting there, and I'm feeling pretty good. It's like, like imagine if I didn't sit there by myself, I would have just turned on the TV or whatnot. But then sitting like lying in bed at night, it's just the thoughts would come up, right? And I think that's true with people who have anxiety they usually have night terrors because, um, you know, they're distracting, they're coping, they're, they have crutches, but then when it's just them in their own mind at night, when there's just darkness, it's like all the monsters literally come out and they're, they're unresolved. And when they come out involuntarily and at random, of course, you're going to not know what to do and it's going to startle you and you're going to have terrors. It's, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, and they, they exactly they don't go away. They just yeah. fester. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and that's why that's why self inquiry, whatever, whether it's through writing, therapy, you know, prayers, people do it differently. Dialogue uh, is a form of psychological and spiritual hygiene. It yeah. really it's cleaning out your mind. So when you're describing, you're eating, you're quiet, you're you're noticing this gremlin thought, that gremlin thought, and considering them one by one, and then there's a kind of a quiet that comes. That's like you've brushed your teeth. It's like you have, you know, you've cleaned yourself out uh, instead of burying it and uh, avoiding it, distracting yourself, and then it just builds up, and that's when it becomes, uh, you know, it becomes toxic. Mm -hmm. Uh, lesson two in the book, uh, oh, well, lesson one was um, on originality. Character is everything. And so we touched a little bit upon some of the, the stuff you mentioned in that lesson about the wilderness being a, a, an important teacher for, for, for someone and letting, uh, uh, shining a light, especially on the 12 steps, admitting to yourself that there's a problem and that you need guidance. But lesson two is, I find really, really fascinating. Um, you are how you see. And, you know, having influence over how we view the world. And um, how does, I guess we touched upon that a bit, how we can change our perspective. Is there anything else you would like to touch upon there, Mark, about changing your perspective? 
Well, first, I think it's important to notice what your perspective is. Right, you know, right. We're, we're, we're moving through our lives looking through these filters, but we don't often ask, what are these filters made of? Right. You know, so that filter is mom, that filter is dad, that filter is your culture, that filter is your, your spiritual beliefs. Uh, so looking at the filters, really understanding that you're passing through these filters all the time, or the, rather they're passing in front of your eyes all the time, uh, is really critical. I, 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 know, I know many people who think of themselves as being optimistic, and then you ask them about their beliefs, they're optimists, they say they're optimistic, but they're always depressed. And then you say, well, tell me a little bit about what you believe. And you realize that they've got a negative take on nearly everything. Yeah. And yet they call themselves optimistic. But, uh, so it's understanding, do you have a pessimistic view of things? Are you fundamentally optimistic? And then asking yourself, you know, what are the ideas, the, th the, the expectations that go into creating that filter? But, but what I've found, Brad, is people do have a basic temperament. You know, in the same way that we have a set point of happiness, you know, everyone has this basic point of happiness where we go a little bit up, a little bit down, but we come back to that place. The same thing goes, I find, with optimism and pessimism. There are some people who just have a darker way of seeing. That's okay. But recognize that it's, it's subjective. You know, it's not necessarily the truth. You can't ask some people who are just sort of naturally doer people or kind of grumpy people or, you know, downbeat people uh, to be cheerful Pollyanna types. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So understand your basic temperament and then self-correct for it. Mm -hmm. Because there's another danger in being Pollyanna and uh, in, in being somebody who just rose-colored glasses and everything looks great all the time. You can miss a hell of a lot. So it's really important to know what your, you know, know what your handicap is, so to speak, and then self-correct for it, uh, and you know, try to come to some level of, 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 of uh, baseline of reality. Mm -hmm. And then lesson three, uh, non-conformity, building your own world, and um, you know, I liked what you said in that chapter about um, being too nice. And, and being naive. And this was someone, this was someone I was, uh, you know, being walked over something also in Dostoevsky's notes from underground, you know, he, that main character was being walked over. He was naive, uh, narcissistic, and uh, just he had no boundaries as a person. And that was my old self to a T. I had no boundaries. And I think, uh, can you expand on that a little bit, Mark? Because I find that to be really fascinating and particularly uh, assertiveness training. How does one even go about that to, to not be so nice? Huh, to not be so nice. Well, Emerson, <laughs> Emerson said, don't be too good. Too good. Uh, too good. Yeah, don't be too good. Uh, and he said a little wickedness is necessary to build muscle. Uh, he didn't like hypocrisy, you know, virtue that was kind of forced out of you for public show or to be seen as, as good. So he said, your goodness must have some edge to it, else it is none. So what that means is recognizing with humility your own limitations, the limitations of your compassion and your empathy, uh, the limitations of your ability to be kind all the time, and really questioning what goodness means. You know, is it good to be obedient in an unfair culture? 
You know, let's say if you're part of a society where there's radical injustice uh, going on, is it good to obey uh, an evil system? Obviously not. But that's often what happens. And at the time of Emerson's life, he, you know, slavery was still happening. He lived through abolition and, and the Civil War. So a lot of very respectable citizens were slave keepers. So what does that mean about being good? You know, who calls good? Is it the right? Is it the left? Is it the middle? Is it the slaveholders, the abolitionists? So we really need to question our own values uh, and, and, and what our own integrity is made of. Is it made of being obedient? Or is it made of standing on our own and having the willingness and the courage to stand apart and speak with our own voice? Very often, goodness is un very unpopular. You know, think of the scorn that gets heaped on people who are doing good. You know, look at someone like Greta Thunberg, you know, the wonderful, you know, Swedish activist. She is mocked. She's, she, she's made fun of. People criticize her. This, this 16-year-old girl, for, or 18, rather, for um, getting out and, and fighting for the planet. So sometimes to be good, it means inviting a lot of opposition, and it takes courage. It really does, and that's why it's important to know what you're fighting for, so that when the when the opposition comes, you know you're you're um, confident in your own position. Mm -hmm. That's so good. It makes me think of the archetypal hero because the hero archetype in like Bilbo Baggins or Harry Potter, for example, they break rules, but they do it in service of this higher good. It's not like they're actually bad people. They're actually rule breakers, but you know, Bilbo has to learn to become a thief in order to, um, you know, save, uh, the Misty mountain or, um, uh, Harry Potter has to learn to break school rules in order to, uh, um, you know, save culture, essentially, the uh, Hogwarts. So I think that's so interesting, like breaking rules at the appropriate times and service for what, it's almost like a leap of faith as well, you know, because a lot of times people don't get to that point because of fear, right? They can't make that jump. Yeah, it's like the American civil rights leader, John Lewis, used to talk about good trouble, get into good trouble. You know, it's that, that's, that's something that we have to remember, you know, sometimes, I mean, moving toward the needle toward justice or moving it toward healing or toward means going against and cutting through a lot of negativity. Mm -hmm. You know, think of Jean Valjean in Les Miserables who steals bread to feed his family. You know, is this an evil person? Right. Obviously not. Right. Uh, and the whole point of that novel is, you know, what is wrong and what is right? What is goodness and what is evil? Does it come from what society tells you or what does, it come, does it come from what your heart knows to be true? Right, right, right. Absolutely. And then I would like to move on to um, lesson five, because I, I really, it, resilience was something that really spoke to me in the book. And uh, I actually wrote a quote down here um, that really, it connected with me. The quote is, the water drowns ships. The, the water drowns ship and sailor like a grain of dust. But learn to swim, trim your bark, and the wave which drowned it will be cloven by it and carry it like its own foam, a plume and a power. And for me, I think fortitude 
and resilience, this was what built upon my, a lot of my self-respect, Mark, as a person, because I had none. So can you talk a little bit about resilience and why was it that Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, valued resilience and how he came to find it? Well, resilience has a lot to do with following nature. Like that passage you just read says, until we surrender to nature, until we move with nature as opposed to away from nature, uh, we're going to be in conflict with forces greater than we are. Uh, and the resilience has a lot to do with uh, hu the humility of knowing the limitations of our power. So with resilience, you want to know what you can do and you want to be very clear on what's outside your control. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be fighting battles that you cannot possibly win. And that is a recipe for burnout uh, and breakdown. Yes. So resilience means uh, admitting uh, who you are uh, and looking at conditions very clearly so that you can then lean in. Uh, and that's what I mean by surrender. Surrender isn't about resignation or complacency. Spiritual surrender is uh, the wisdom. It's the grace uh, of moving with the uh, with the direction uh, of nature and, and leaning into it the way the person who is on that boat does on on a stormy sea. When you, anyone who's been through a crisis knows that the that fighting the crisis, fighting what's going on, is not going to do you any good. You really have to acknowledge what's going on and and move with it uh, for there to be any kind of balance or healing or resolution. Move with it, mm. and then. Lesson seven on courage. Uh, another big part of, of what I found for me to be the answer in, in um, life's chaotic it, nature. I mean, uh, um, I, learning how to confront fear, Mark, for me, actually built upon not only my tolerance, but also that self-respect, like I said earlier, but um, what did Waldo talk, what was his take on fear and um, what can we learn from him about it? Well, his aunt Mary Moody Emerson was his first great teacher. She was this amazing little self-taught woman. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, always, always do what you are most afraid to do. So that was ingrained in him. Right. Uh, and he, what he recognizes, what we've been talking about, that when you move toward your greatest fears, that's what empowers you. That's what helps you to, you know, to bring fear you know, down a, a notch and be able to see past it. So, for example, when his first wife died, Ellen, he was very much in love with her. She died when she was 19 years old of tuberculosis, and he was in a grief that just wouldn't shift. He was suicidal, he was miserable, he was in his late 20s at that point. Uh, and he realized he had to do the thing he was most afraid of doing. And so what he did is he went to the cemetery and he opened her coffin to look into her dead face. It was his greatest fear. And we don't know exactly what happened. It's in his journal, it's one line, went to the cemetery and opened Ellen's coffin. But we do know that after that, the depression lifted Within a year, he had gone to Europe. He had started meeting his literary heroes. He had started writing his first book. He left the ministry. So something about facing his greatest fear shook him out of his torpor uh, and his paralysis. And that's what is important about fear when it really has you in its grip. 
Uh, because if you stay there, if you play the victim, if you get passive, the, the, the fear will squeeze the life out of you. You have to be willing to face the fear. Right. Uh, and, and, when, and when you do that, it, look, it's not fun uh, and it can be really, really scary, uh, but it gives you a deeper sense of your own potential. Uh, and the important, another important thing that uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said about courage is don't compare your courage to someone else's. You know, my brand of courage is one thing. Your brand of courage is something else. He says, like, a fox has its courage and the giraffe has its courage. Well, we each have our own form of courage. So, for example, for one person, you know, one person would rather go off to battle than get in front of a group and do public speaking. Yeah. You know, and it, it, people have sliding scales of what terrifies them. So don't compare your courage to somebody else's. You know, for some people, just getting up out of bed in the morning, going to a job that is scary to them or, or can, can be as great as somebody else, you know, jumping out of an airplane. You know, appreciate your own courage for what it is. And, and because the more you do that, the more self-belief you're going to develop and the more confidence. Mark, it's remarkable the things that I've witnessed coaching people with severe anxiety, just setting small incremental goals towards the things that make them uncomfortable and to see the look on their faces, like even just, you know, something like, well, how about you wake up 20 to 30 minutes earlier than you usually do? Right. And they, they, like after a week of it, they're like, Hey, look, look at me, you know, like I, I did something that I thought I couldn't do. And how about you do another half an hour? And then, you know, three months, four months down the road, they're like, I'm, I'm getting up at five 30 and it's just a look on their face. Right. It's just something so simple like that. It's remarkable how it changes people's lives because they just didn't know they had that potential within them. They just thought they were just dominated by this, this you know, habit that they can't break or get this funk that they can't get out of. It's, it's yeah. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you brought up the word habit. I was just going to say it's a lot of it has to do with changing habits. There's a wonderful book out. You may have seen it. It's called atomic habits by James clear. Yeah. And he talks about how making very small changes, uh, on a regular basis, you know, has this incremental effect and can lead to enormous shift, you know, shifts in your, in your life, small things like getting up 20 minutes earlier and seeing, oh, I can do that. You know, I don't have to be the victim of, you know, I, I sleep till 10 o'clock, yeah. you know, every day. Yeah. And that kind of thing is so inspiring to me because it doesn't, they don't have to be monumental, heroic things. They can be small, small things. Take 10 minutes in the morning. I always tell people take 10 or 15 minutes in the morning to write. Just 10 or 15 minutes. Ask yourself one question. How am I today? And sit and, and, and just write about that and notice how that shifts your sense of, uh, of balance and the kind of hygiene we were talking about. Notice how much clearer you feel for the rest of the day. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would like to pick your brain more about the shadow because the shadow is something that for me has been a passion of mine. I started reading books like Ordinary Men, uh, which depicts or, or talks about the the police a battalion in in um, Nazi Germany and how these regular men uh, wound up shooting naked pregnant women in the back of the head just ordinary men and the process it, it you know of getting to that point of just regular people just being overly consumed by by real darkness and uh, and 
I've always been fascinating about the sh- fascinated b- about the shadow, but I've learned through recovery, you know, th- how much of that was unexamined and unrealized and that the healing process took a long time. But if you can explain to those who are not familiar with the shadow, what it's about and, um, and w- if Waldo even thought anything of it, Yes, he did. He never used the word shadow in the Jungian sense. Uh, You know, Jung came a little bit after Waldo. But yes, he was very much aware of uh, the shadow. And one thing he said is that he who has never visited the house of pain has only uh, experienced half of his life. So understanding it, the part of us ourselves, the shadow, what Jung called the shadow, that we keep out of our own awareness because it's too frightening. that contains not only things that are terrifying to us and that are threatening to us, but also our gifts. So when you avoid your shadow, you avoid your own genius. You avoid an element of your own strength. And it's so critical that we do this kind of excavation if we want to empower ourselves. Mm. You know, Jung himself said, you don't become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. If we don't make the darkness conscious, we, uh, it's like wasting half of who we are. All of this energy gets wasted uh, suppressing stuff that actually has a lot of life to it. So looking at the shadow means being willing to uh, look at the parts of yourself that cause you shame and fear, uh, terror, dread, rage, embarrassment, but also things that may just cause you confusion because they don't fit in with your own culture. You know, so, so for example, a woman who uh, is an artist who lives in a repressive culture uh, and suppresses that because it's not, it's not permitted in her culture uh, will end up burying her greatest strength in the shadow because it's just too painful to look at. Yeah, yeah. So it's really allowing what the things that we put under the rock, so to speak, you know, to, to sh- shine the light on them so that we see what's really there mm-hmm. and what is it telling us. Because the shadow is one of the elements of our own shadow or some of our greatest teachers. Yeah. And when we don't look there, we're, we really are uh, depriving ourselves of a, of a real asset in our lives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I, when you were saying that, I was thinking about the great artists I actually admire, like Picasso or Caravaggio, who, who were very you know, in touch with their shadow and they were bold and they, people were offended and appalled by their work. And later they, their work became legendary and masterpieces, but, you know, Caravaggio was a drunk and his, my favorite painting of his was, um, the taking of Christ. So dramatic. And, and just, um, he was, he it was, his art was so, he was a dramatist, but he was, um, his lifestyle was so chaotic. He was arrested, like God knows, dozens of times, and and so uh, and so. I, um, just these people, could, like right now, Mark, in our culture, I think everyone's so sensitive, which which is very, you know, a lot of people are fearful of being bold, maybe. Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. Yeah. It reminds that reminds me of a, a story that I tell in the book, actually, around originality. Uh, someone was uh, painting in a painting class and her work was just kind of blah and neutral. It didn't have any kick to it. It was workmanlike, but it wasn't really original. And her teacher suggested that she start using black in on her canvases because mm-hmm. they were all kind of paisley colors. And 
So she started using black and suddenly her painting got really edgy and interesting and unique. It's like she unleashed this whole thing in her and she became a memorable, quite good painter. Yeah. But she avoided the black. So uh, you see, you know, the metaphor is obvious. When we avoid the black in ourselves, we lose depth, we lose definition, we lose edge, uh, we lose intensity. Uh, so it's really about no, not being afraid of that. And that goes back to what we were saying about goodness. You know, when you, when you kind of impersonate this goody two-shoes, uh, you, you're not only not believable or particularly likable, but you lose your own power. Yeah, absolutely. I do have to ask you before we conclude our conversation, Mark, about speaking of art, Andy Warhol, you worked as a believe, proofreader, right, for his magazine interview. Um, and I want to ask you about Andy because I just saw an exhibit of him here in Toronto um, of his works. And, you know, my fiance and I, we went and she's a big fan of Andy as well. And so am I. And his work is bold, bright. Like, what can you say or what can you not say about him? Like, he's just unbelievable. But um, what was your experience like and how did you wind up being a proofreader for him? Oh, yeah. Well, that was, that was a funny story. A friend of mine knew the guy who taught aerobics to the editor of Interview. I had gotten a master's degree in uh, English and I came to New York to be a writer, but I needed a job. So I went in and I started as a proofreader at uh, Interview Magazine, and I ended up being a senior editor after three years. Um, and being around Andy was a huge education for me. Uh, talk about rule breakers. Talk about someone being willing to be original. He used all of his weaknesses to his advantage and turned them into strengths. Yeah. So, for example, he was prematurely bald, so he started wearing these crazy wigs. They became his trademark. He wasn't a particularly good draftsman, so he started tracing photographs and painting on them, and that became his signature style. Uh, so I learned from him that you could, that originally originality comes from optimizing your limitations. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about trying to imitate somebody else. That's going, you know, that's the kiss of death, and you're only, you're going to end up a mediocrity. So I, I learned I learned a lot from Andy. He was a difficult person. He was a crazy person to work for, uh, but I got to meet a lot of fascinating folks. I worked there for three years, and I got to interview a lot of really interesting people, and to really see up close, you know, what fame really looks like. You know, what what it is and what it isn't. Uh, so it, after three years, I ran, I got the hell out of there as fast as I could. It wasn't my particular world, but I'm, I'm sure glad that I did it. And he was, he was, he was a genius. There's no question about it. love him or hate him. The work stands alone in its, in its uniqueness and its singularity. I agree. I, I remember seeing his sketches of the nude males that he did. I was just blown away because I couldn't imagine at the time you know, how this would have been viewed by the public, you know, uh, homosexuality at the time must have been very sensitive and him to draw these uh, sketches, I, I would have been, uh, you know, like for me, I, I thought that was remarkable that, you know, these pe these great people that I admire go outside, even great comedians today, they go outside and, and they, they, they cross the line. And they 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 wind up to be the best or legendary, you know. And if they don't cross the line, they're not doing their job. Yep. 
particularly yeah. as a comedian, nobody wants to go hear a polite comic. Yeah. You, know, you go there to watch them break things. Yep. And I would argue the same thing goes for art, any kind of art. You want a real artist wants to break things. We want to disrupt things. We want to make, you know, we want to make things, you know, we want to create some turmoil. And, and so Andy drew those, those, you know, naked men, sure. But then he took videos of these porn stars and, you know, and said, this is art, you know, or the, or he put a camera on the Empire State for 24 hours and said, this is art. You know, people say, no, no, no. But of course, there's no such thing as bad publicity. He was one of the first arbiters of that. And getting noticed was his was his uh, was his primary aim. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. I I, I love him so much. Any any last uh, words, Mark, before we conclude? I really much enjoy talking with you. You have a lot of great wisdom, and um, you've been doing this for a long time. Um, I suppose I would like to ask you about your other works because I am interested because I really love the book and I encourage everyone listening to go and pick it up. I think it's pre-order right now, I believe. It's on sale tomorrow, actually. Uh, oh, on sale tomorrow. Congratulations. Uh, uh, yeah, so go pick it up. Um, but I would let, I'm interested and I'm curious to ask you about your other works, Mark. Um, what have you written about before and... Uh, well, I'm just curious because I'm interested in more of your stuff. Yeah, well, my first two books were memoirs. memoirs? Uh, the first one was called Sex, Death, Enlightenment, and it was about working at Interview Magazine, having a personal crisis hit, and then mm -hmm. going to India and living in ashrams and monasteries and really asking, where does value lie? You know, what do I really care about? I had been in this fast-track New York career, and then it didn't mean anything to me anymore. And I went into a real existential quandary for about 10 years. So that book, Sex, Death, Enlightenment, is about that. Then I wrote a book about looking for my father called The Boy He Left Behind. My dad uh, left when I was four years old, and I never knew him. So I've written two memoirs. I wrote a book called Ethical Wisdom, which is really looking at what makes us good. That was the original subtitle, uh, as we were saying earlier here. I've written a book called Writing to Awaken, which describes my writing method that I teach. Uh, I teach people how to how to get true to the emotional truth of their own stories and understand the 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 um, the beliefs that are shaping how they how they live. Uh, I wrote a book about a wonderful spiritual teacher named Mother Mira, who's an Indian teacher. It's called Mother of the Unseen World. And the question in that book is really, what is mysticism? You know, we meet these great masters in various traditions. What are they all about? You know, when you talk about enlightenment, what are you talking about? You know, she happens to be somebody who I have spent time with who has this extraordinary kind of otherworldly quality. Uh, and there have been healings that happen in her presence. I have had extraordinary experiences in her presence. What is that? So that the question behind that book is, is really what, what is enlightenment? Uh, so I've written, I've written uh, on a lot of different things. My main, the thing that connects them all is the question of who am I? You know, they all have a, a serious philosophical question behind them. Yep. And so that's what's driven every one of my books is some, some aspect of self-knowledge and self-realization. I love that. You're constantly pushing the boundaries of yourself and, and you're, you're constantly moving out into the unknown and, and, um, I think that's remarkable. I think that's what everyone should be doing. You know, we shouldn't be confined in a box. We shouldn't be confined in a conservative bubble. We should constantly learn because so much new information is being 
well brought our way all the time so much wisdom out there like there's so much more that we don't know than what we already know and so i think that's a great place to conclude this conversation mark thank you so much my pleasure brad it's great to great to meet you good to talk it's great to meet you too i'd love to talk to you some other time and uh, i recommend everybody to go get lessons from an american stoic by mark matusik um it's a great book and i'm excited to look check out your other works Thanks very much. You're welcome. Brad's Powerful Anxiety Recovery Program is now available at unpluganxiety.com. The Anxiety Project Program is downloadable and puts the power of anxiety recovery in your own hands. Visit unpluganxiety.com.